Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't a podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Hey, Corey, how hot is it in Idaho today? Well, it's uh, for Idaho, it's hot. For the first part of June, it's hot. And for the dry year we're headed into, it's hot. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. hot all the, way, all the way around. Yeah. Here what in Montana, it, it's supposed to be 97 degrees tomorrow which will be the whatever that'll be fourth of june or something it's like oh my gosh and last week i was up walleye fishing and it was 40 degrees raining and 25 mile an hour wind i had a snot roll coming off my nose there my wife told me to get a hanky (laughs) honey the better answer is let's let's get off the lake and go to the cabin i come here to have fun not to freeze to death (laughs) and she probably (laughs) said get back to flaying my fish something like that yeah we we, it's six hours there and six hours back and the wind blew so hard every day in the three days of fishing time we had allotted we didn't spend 12 hours on the lake but we spent 12 hours in the truck getting there and back so (laughs) yeah welcome to the the high plains but uh oh well i was i was out doing something rather than right now it's too hot to even go on a hike yeah i'm sure the folks in Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico are like, oh my, poor you, it's 90 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> Try 110 buckshot. Uh, oh, wow. But I, you know what's got me worried is we didn't have a lot of moisture this winter. I don't know if you guys did. We, we had like 80 to 90% of our normal moisture. And if we're going to have this much heat this early, all the snow has gone off the all the south facing and west facing slopes in our mountains. This is not good. Yep, it's the same here. In fact, I uh, last year I did really well picking morel mushrooms, and so this year mm-hmm. I thought I'm going to get back out and see if I can replicate the success there. And I started last year on Memorial Day weekend. That's when they start popping up here, and mm-hmm. I probably went through at least the middle towards the latter part of June, you know, obviously happened to go up in elevation as the season progressed, but I went out low elevation last week and the morels were already dried up and the foliage was so just lush and thick that, I mean, we're three weeks, four weeks ahead of, ahead of a normal year. As far as things blooming, huckleberry bushes are already drying up and huckleberries are dying and there's not even a bloom. I mean, they're, they're barely bloomed yet. They haven't even started growing and the huckleberries are all falling off. All the blooms are falling off. The leaves are dried up and they just look like it. They look like they look in late September, just all dried and red leaves. And Uh, I haven't painted a pretty picture. No, if we don't get some good summer moisture, it uh, could be a yeah. rough year. Yeah, it could be really rough. That's that's my worry. Is okay, they had a pretty easy winter, but you know how it goes. About every fourth or fifth year up here in the Northern Rockies, we get an easy winter followed by a super dry summer. The range conditions are terrible because of the drought, and then that year we get a killer winter, and the animals have went into the winter pretty much 
at their lowest point because we just didn't have good good uh, moisture with good vegetation. And so it doesn't take much of a winter to knock a bunch of them off. And uh, I'm worried about that. Besides all the fires that we're probably going to have instead of August, it'll be the 4th of July or something. Yep. No, and that's, you know, I, we always say on really moist springs when it gets, you know, when everything's just lush and green and there's just a whole bunch of growth, you know, we always say, well, if it dries off this summer, it's going to be bad because we've created a whole bunch of fuel. I mean, if that's if that holds true, this summer shouldn't be a bad fire year because all of the fuel is dead. <laughs> yeah. we, uh, we didn't get near the, near the overburst of undergrowth this year that we usually get. Yeah, that's true. Have you ever turned a tag back because of a drought situation, or would you? Uh, I have not, and I wish I would have. I hunted oh, really? Utah. Yeah, I drew Utah. And, you know, Utah takes a lot of points to draw, and I drew, mm-hmm. drew a good tag in Utah, and it was the worst drought Utah had had in 30 years, and several people said, you know, you should probably, you can turn it back in and restore your points and draw it next year, and me not having a, a real firm concept at that point of first off, you know, desert states that have uh, more of the non-migratory elk, uh, the effect mm-hmm. that drought has on them, and I just thought, hey, an elk's an elk; it's still going to rut. Yeah, the rut might be a little bit uh, less active than it would otherwise be, but I'm still going to be able to find elk, and if anything, they'll be concentrated and. So I went into it with that mindset, and on day seven of an eight-day hunt, I uh, had only called in, I think, two or three elk, and we ended up pulling up roots and going to the other side of the unit, and they were just screaming over there. So um, I wish I'd have listened because it was uh, it was a tough hunt. It was nothing like what it usually was, and the experience was pretty disappointing, uh, but I was mm-hmm. warned, and and didn't heed that advice. But if I was to draw Arizona or Utah or Nevada uh, on a year when when drought was a consideration, I would turn it back in in a heartbeat. As excited as I am to hunt those states, those are states that are, you know, top tier, not only for trophy size elk, but just for the experience. And uh, Well, the reason I ask is... mm, since our last podcast, my son Matthew, on his 19th try, finally drew elk in Nevada. And in the last few days, some people have emailed me, have you seen what the moisture is? Do you, do you understand that this could be a really bad year? It's like, well, we're going anyhow, I think, unless Matthew <laughs> changes his mind. But I, I got to put on the calendar. But when you start getting warnings from people who live there and see it, it's like, hmm. Am I a fool enough to turn back a tag? Not me, but is Matthew fool enough to turn back a tag that took nineteen times? And it might take nine. It might take twenty nine more to draw. Who knows? I was just going to say, you know, with states like Oregon and Colorado and uh, Utah, where they have a preference point system, and you're guaranteed to draw when you have the most points, you can turn your tag back in and know probably next year, if not within the next couple of years, you're going to draw it again because it's it's a preference system but in a state like uh, Nevada and other yeah. states that have a bonus point system yeah you have you have a lot better odds maybe but your odds are not 
approaching anything that makes you excited because there's a lot of people with a lot of points and you're just one more name in the hat. Yeah. Looking at last year's numbers out on the Go Hunt Insider, his odds with 19 points for this tag were 3.7%. Yep. So... Yeah, we, you almost yeah, drug me do down that a tangent on bonus points again, but I'm going <laughs> to refrain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's once every 30 years. It's like, ooh, hmm. All right, whatever he wants to do, it's his tag. Doesn't yeah. matter to me. But I just, when I start getting emails like that, I'm like, you know, you were saying, ah, oh, I thought I can't, you know, elk or elk. That's what's in my mindset also, but... When you hear it from people who you respect and and uh, they live there and see it, you start to have a little bit of the question in the back of your mind of, am I just being bullheaded here? Am I <laughs> ignoring the warning signs? Iceberg, dead ahead. Who cares? Give it the full steam and pretty soon you're the Titanic. You're out there dog paddling in the frozen <laughs> North Atlantic. So, <clears throat> but, oh, well. I guess not my tag. I don't need to. I don't need to make up my mind. I got. Uh, I got it on the calendar. If it doesn't happen, I guess I'll get to stay home and shovel snow or something. Yeah. Oh. So what? What hmm. season is that? What time of year? He he drew. It's in November. There's in Nevada. They have an. Most units have a first rifle season and a second rifle season. He drew the second or the first rifle season. So November 6th through the 20th, I think it is, something like that. Well, if uh, if he turns his tag back in and you're just sitting home shoveling snow, I know somebody that has a third season rifle mule deer tag in Colorado that took 16 points to draw, and you'd be welcome to tag along on that. Really? Yeah. Can I bring my llamas? (laughs) Can you bring your llamas? You can bring Bo Beatty if you want. Well, Bo drew Colorado this year. Well, there we go. So maybe he'll just meet you. Maybe you guys will be like doing the handoff. He'll just tie off the llamas and you can pick him up. I was hoping he would be in camp to cook, but (laughs) 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 I've eaten his cooking before at hunting camp. Well, I got got news for you. He's going to be in a Rocky Mountain, Montana goat camp. I've already obligated him to that because he was with (laughs) me when when I saw this goat that I ended up drawing the tag for. We called him Grubby because he was all dirty. So I texted him. I'm like, hey, Bo, I drew a tag for Grubby. He's like, what date? I'm going to be there. I'm like, all right, here are the dates. So, yeah, sorry, we're 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 kind of busy in November, Corey. I think no, you're on you, your own. You just told me it's on the calendar for Matthew's hunt, and if he doesn't, if he turns his tag back in, you're just going to be sitting at home shoveling snow. So, yeah, you're uh, right. I've got uh, it recorded. I'd, I'd, I'm going to have <laughs> tens of thousands of witnesses that are going to hear this and. Uh, you try pulling a mountain goat hunt on me in November, and I'm going to say, hey, that was not on the calendar. Yeah, uh, well, if he turns his tag back in, I'm going to disinherit him. <laughs> All $20 he might inherit from me, I'm going to give to a charity. <laughs> My kids ask about inheritance once in a while. I'm like, the only thing you're going to inherit from me is debt, so don't get too excited. <laughs> I yeah, will one day spent someone... everything I've made by the time that we need to talk about inheritance. So. That's my goal. 
Some, yeah. Somebody one time, Bozeman has a lot of what they call trust funders. They're like, <laughs> uh, they, you know, kids who move here to be ski bums and live live off the trust parents set up for them. And one day somebody said, hey, I heard you're a trust funder. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, well, let's see, I grew up in a trailer house in a little logging town. And uh, I said, the only trust fund in my family was my parents were trusting. I'd figure out a way to fund their retirement. <laughs> yeah. that, that, was, that was a trust fund in my family uh, but oh well anyhow you brought up a topic i want to explore a little more you said migratory you, you introduced the term migratory versus non-migratory elk and i've been doing a lot of i don't know what you'd call it uh not research but just putting my thoughts together on that topic because we get a lot of questions from people and just by how they ask the question you can almost tell if they live in a state like Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, maybe Utah where the elk don't go on these long migrations that you and I see in Idaho and Montana. But then where we live, we got migratory elk. So I've started approaching my the way I answer questions and how I prioritize what the needs are based on are these elk migratory or are they not migratory? So I'm almost asking people when they ask me a question, my first question back is do your elk migrate or not migrate? Because it does make quite a bit of difference in how the elk use the landscape between the northern Rockies and other places where the elk really don't have to migrate. So, I was just going to ask you what the difference was and oh. how, uh, how, you, how, how that difference plays into the answer you give on where to find elk and how to hunt elk and all that. Yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, I kind of look at it as moisture or lack thereof in the non, non-migratory herds causes the elk to use the landscape in a certain way in somewhat similar fashion of how bad weather or lack of bad weather caused the elk up in our part of the world to use the the landscape differently. In other words, it's probably one of the bigger variables I have to take into account. And I'll use an example of either a high moisture year with great monsoons or a drought year like they're having right now. And when I go down and hunt those states, what I notice is that in a drought year, the elk are not as dispersed across the landscape. They're in very small pockets. But when you find those pockets of where they are, they're in high densities. In other words, it's kind of like if you took all the marbles in your bag and instead of spreading them out equally on the floor, you put them in little piles here and there. And it's like, oh, took me a while to find this pile of elk, but boy, there's a pile of them here. And and it's not just the water itself, the surface water that they need, but you think about how these drought years affect what the food is and how the food is able to be utilized. And by that, I mean, it, if you are hunting a spot that has a public land grazing allotment and it's a drought year like this, the cattle are probably going to consume most of that available forage. So where are the allotments that are not being utilized this year? Because they have these rotation plants. Maybe it's a, a winter allotment 
and summer allotment, whatever. There are rotations, so you can use that to your advantage. There are some preferred feeds that are more drought resistant than others. And so the elk have to find those places, and they're really good at finding them, where these forage sources are able to grow in even in the the presence of this severe drought so that causes two 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 needs the the food and water need to elevate a little bit higher in in when you're trying to solve for where will you find them the food and water need end up being higher up the priority list than they maybe would be in a high moisture year just because of the scarcity of food and water so that's that's uh, the example that I'm I'm trying to put into into something sane here. I you know you asked me to do some more chapters, modules, whatever for your University of Elk Hunting course, yeah. and uh, this is one of them that I did, and we filmed it last week or week before, whenever before I went fishing, and we're editing it this week, and when you look at it. You might say, Randy, start over, man. This makes <laughs> no sense. But I think it'll make some sense. And the same thing when I talk about migratory elk. You know, we're talking about sanctuaries uh, in both these instances. But all sanctuaries aren't created equal. The sanctuaries that are closest to the other primary need is the preferred sanctuary. So if we have really, really mild winter, when you're hunting a post-rutter late season in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, maybe even Colorado, those elk are going to be at higher concentration levels at the top of their transition range just because there's no need for them to go low yet. But if we have early winter, early cold, lots of snow, they're going to be mid or bottom part of the transition range, and they're going to be in sanctuaries in that part of the transition range. So... These generalized patterns of weather and moisture have some big impacts, differing impacts about whether this is a, a migratory group of elk you're hunting or a non-migratory group of elk. So hmm. hopefully yeah. when I finish that, you'll say, you know, Newberg, you're not all as dumb as I thought you were. But Yeah, I was just going to um, say, there are, there are a lot of rabbit holes you could go down into when you start... <laughs> Diving into, you know, moisture versus drought, uh, migratory versus non-migratory, post-rut versus late season versus peak rut versus early season versus pre-rut. And now you start putting the, you know, the combination of all those together. If you are in a non-migratory area where there's drought late season, there is a specific game plan for that. And you start looking at all those combinations and there's almost hundreds of things yeah. that you have to account yeah. for and, and be prepared for. And that's why people say, Newberg, why do you have so many locations on your e-scouting map? Because I don't know what it's going to be until I get there. Even though, like right now, I have a general idea that in Nevada, Matthew and I are working on his scouting plan. Guess what? It's going to be pretty dry. So there's a bunch of locations I can just cross off. I mean general trends like that you can handle now my e-scouting plan for montana i'm going to have a whole bunch of different options but i'm not really going to finalize which one i'm going with until probably if 
a week before season where I say, oh, we haven't had any snow. Man, they're going to be way up high, just like happened to me in Colorado last year. You know, last year for me, that Colorado hunt was at almost 12,000 feet. It was such a – and this is where the light bulb came on because the camera crew was asking me some questions. I'm like, well, this is what everybody does. They're like, no, I don't think so. There's nobody else up here. (laughs) If everybody else did it, they'd be up here with us. I'm like, oh, and the point of that was I had a bunch of different options. When we got there, I realized it was 75 degrees. It had been warm all fall. These elk aren't going to be down at 10,000 feet. They're going to be up at 12. And so I had an e-scouting option that provided for that. So I said, all right, throw away plans A and B. We're going with plan C. And that's what we did. And we found plenty of cooperative elk. So it's, I use that as an example of why it matters. Because if I would have showed up and my only plan was, all right, it's going to be, um, this plan is really good when there's four feet of snow up there at 13, <laughs> 12, 13,000 feet. And so I was hunting down at 9,000. I don't know that I would have seen any elk. And I would have said, boy, this was a ripoff. Why did I spend three points on this hunt? So my my point of making all that complicated as I have is that this these little variables that we may overlook or take for granted actually play a really big part of where you will find the elk at the time you're trying to hunt them. Yeah. So... Very that make cool. any sense no totally and that just got my brain spinning that i mean it it just adds layers and layers of not complexity necessarily but details uh, mm-hmm. that you need to know to be able to find elk it's you know me growing up in idaho and hunting a, a migratory herd when drought isn't a concern i just think about the hunt that i went on in utah uh had i known you know, then even what I know now, let alone what I'm excited to learn when you uh, complete all of the the modules that you're making for the online course, uh, it, it would have changed my outlook on it. It would have changed the way I hunted uh, in Idaho. You know, you just kind of grind it out. It's like, hey, if I put in eight straight days, mm-hmm. eventually we're going to get into elk. And down yeah. there, it wasn't the wasn't the case. We needed to completely move to a new location and look for those primary factors that they're needing and knowing what the primary factor. I mean, obviously we knew water was a factor, but there was water where we were, but there was also cattle. There mm-hmm. was also Buffalo. There was, you know, there a lot of things competing <laughs> for a very limited resource. And I think, you know, there was a lot of private beyond where we were. And I would imagine that with the agriculture and everything going on there, they probably had, the water and i'm guessing that's where the alcohol disappeared to and and stayed in that area so yeah yeah a lot of things to well, consider the, the the blm range cons are gonna hate me for saying this but they've all got an email from me in the last week hey i need to know each allotment and what the grazing period is for each allotment and that's public information and i don't want i don't need to make a full-blown freedom of information request they'll usually tell you oh this is my district here's the allotments this one's in being rotated and it won't be used this year 
I can't believe I just let that little cat out of the bag. But. <laughs> I was going to say. Anyhow, uh, in non-migratory herds, all of the BLM range cons get an email from me asking that stuff. Because if it's a really high moisture year, it really doesn't matter that much because the cattle... <clears throat> domestic grazing is not going to impact the forage base enough in a good moisture year. Yeah. In a bad moisture year like this, any place that's being grazed or grazed right up just before the, sea, the elk season we're going to be on, I pretty much almost cross those off my list. So if that's two-thirds of the unit, now I know I've only got one-third of the unit left to be looking around. Yep. No price for that advice, and it's probably worth what you say, paid for it. Well, it might even be worth a little more this time. I think, so. I think we could consider that a nugget. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know some people are like, Newberg, shut up. <laughs> Don't be telling everybody those kind of secrets. Uh, and I know what the BLM guys are going to be saying. Why? <laughs> shut up, man. We got enough to do. But my, my point of that is, and the same, I don't know how many times I've done this in New Mexico, uh, Arizona. Arizona, I've usually done it with the Forest Service folks because most elk there are on, on Forest Service. But uh, to me, that's a big issue. You know, elk are highly selective and they're going to go find where are the sanctuaries because this is Matthew's hunt is a late season hunt. So we'll use this as a planning example. We know it's late season, so sanctuaries are going to be priority once the shooting starts there's not a lot of hunting pressure in this unit so it's not like in colorado by the third season over the counter those elk have they've they've found caves to crawl in they're looking for sanctuaries so much so it won't be quite as dramatic the sanctuary effect in a place with this limited of hunting pressure but they still once the first shots are fired that's where they're going and they're going to the sanctuaries that are closest to the best feed. That way they don't have to travel very far to feed each day. They know that too. You know, old Pete, he went on a nature walk last year and he got brought home in the back of someone's F-150. <laughs> They're like, hmm, don't be like Pete. <laughs> so the, the sanctuaries, first of all, as a general rule, they're going to be attracted to the places with the best forage that haven't been competed with by cattle. So they're going to be in those general areas anyhow. And then they're going to be in the sanctuaries areas in those spots closest to water. So that's how I will connect those dots in those priorities. Yep. And who knows? Maybe we'll go there and we won't even see an elk. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Now that I laid all that out, yeah. you know what people are going to say? Don't don't listen to that chucklehead. Look at him. <laughs> they can't even put together a, an e-scouting plan for Nevada. What kind of hopeless operation are they? See, that's the problem but, with, uh, so with my, giving elk hunting advice and then mm -hmm. filming your hunt. Because people are able to right. see right through. It's like, oh, that didn't work. All right. Let's find a new podcast yeah. to listen to. Yeah. yeah. As they say, brag about your shooting after the hunt, not That's before right. the hunt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyhow, that's I throw that out there because doing this e-scouting for this hunt, uh, just what Matthew and I are already starting on, it's it, it really brought to light. Kind of what I learned last year in Colorado. I mean, 
I've kind of known it. I've never formalized it, I guess, is, is what I'm saying here. I'm now making it a more formal part of what I do. Uh, it's highlighted to me the difference between migratory elk and non-migratory elk. Yep. And uh, so, anyhow, I don't know. Have we completely destroyed that subject? I don't think we destroyed it. I spoke think, enough. I was going to say, I think we covered it, okay. though. Okay. Oh. Okay, we made up enough enough stories about that. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we got a, a question from a, a listener. Oh, before we go on, when when do you need this for the university course? Did you tell me you needed it by like June tenth or something? Well, yeah, I mean we're we're approaching it. I think a lot of people are. I always look at it as Memorial Day weekend is kind of when people start thinking a little more seriously about their fall plans. And so having information to, okay. to research and learn and all of that. So yeah, anytime, uh, anytime from here on out, by the, I'd say by the time July, 4th of July comes, uh, they're transitioning more into family vacations and uh, physical conditioning and some of those things and spending less time learning. So it kind of tapers off mm. there. So June's always a good month for sure. Oh man! Did you say you're almost done? <laughs> Is so that what I heard? It, no, I no. <laughs> I'm saying I got to call my wife now and say, "Honey, these two other fishing trips we have in June, I got to cancel those because Corey gave me a deadline." I was just going to say, "Don't oh. you dare blame me for that." <laughs> me and Joe. Hey, uh, we'll we'll be. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, she, sh she saves all of her harshness for me. And she, <laughs> she if she, if she doled it out where it was deserved, she would, she'd be way harsher. She's not harsh at all. But if she ever does get kind of a little side-eyed, it'll be at me, not you. Okay, I, I mean, good. I shouldn't even say, say harsh. She puts up with more crap. I don't know. Someday she's going to wake up, Corey, and say, what am I doing with this knucklehead? Oh, man, I hope that day never comes. <laughs> so, anyhow. But how can people, your course, I mean, we got to put the plug in for it. You never will, so I always got to bring it up because Mr. Modesty is like, well, I don't like being a sales guy. So if they use promo code ELKTALK out at the University of Elk Hunting course, they get 20 bucks off, right? Yep. Or did you quit that? No, it's... Uh, <laughs> okay. Did I quit that? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Limited time offer, though. <laughs> this is where we become yeah. salesmen. No, it's... Yeah. Uh, $20. Billy Mays. <laughs> $20 off, and uh, yeah, there's no better time than right now to dive in and... There's just a whole bunch more information than, you know, you start breaking down migratory, non-migratory, archery season, rifle season, post-rut, uh, peak rut, and all of that. And we really, that's, you know, that's why I invited Randy to contribute his expertise and his vast knowledge and experience in that late season and post-rut. And because it's, it's something, you know, I don't have a lot of experience in, especially when you start diving into those details like, you just mentioned and talked about it's you know that's that's your wheelhouse and so to have you be able to provide that information on the same platform and in the same resource that you know, we share other elk hunting resources and, and information and tactics and everything it just makes it that much better and that much more complete so i'm excited to see what you come up with well 
well, uh, feel free to to edit and send send back with a you know like Ralphie <laughs> in a Christmas story he got what a C plus on his paper great graded however you need to and we'll try to get to at least a B minus so but anyhow go where where go you out elk one one dot com click on the, the uh, link I'm sure the homepage there's plenty of banners and links there and if you can't find it just at the top click on the one that says online course and it'll walk you through the process cool. All right. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave that without forcing you to be a salesman for I, at least a minute. I recognize that. But our next question comes from a, a listener who asked this. What, it, well, it, it was kind of a two part question. What data do we uh, use when we're selecting which over the counter or general or region, like in states where you, Say the general tag in Montana or Wyoming or the over-the-counter in Colorado and the, the zones in Idaho. What data do we use to decide which of these many possible units or locations do we hunt? And then he had a kind of a second part to that question of, is the harvest data really that reliable or does it just show how many lazy <laughs> hunters there are? <laughs> <laughs> <That's a> great <laughs> question. <laughs> uh, uh, I I look at it that the I, I say the population of hunters between the really hardcore get after it guys and the lazy guys and uh, is about the same across every unit. The same thing, so yeah, it, I I I don't attribute it to that. I I think he meant to put a smiley face on that before he hit the send button, but it didn't come <laughs> through. No, and I think you're exactly right there. When I look at harvest percentages in each unit, uh, I just assume that there is a, a pretty steady mix of hardcore hunters and lazy hunters, and somewhere in the middle is the average, and that's what they take the, the harvest percentage off of. And I would say, you know, there, there, there are going to be units that are absolutely rugged and no roads or access in there. And you know that the people that are hunting that are probably getting after it. And, you know, something like that, you might expect it would yeah. have higher success rates because the more serious hunters are there. But in actuality, it's usually the opposite. And it's just because it's so rugged and tough that, you know, the elk are able to keep ahead of us and a little tougher to track them down so you know there's, there's a lot of things to consider and i definitely do take that into consideration when i look at the harvest success and say okay if it's 15 percent, that's fairly decent you know that means there's definitely elk there people are getting into elk mm -hmm. and having opportunities um but then when i see something like 40 percent success rates in a over-the-counter hunt for archery season or something you know, it just makes me think there's got to be elk running all over the top of people all day. And it's, you know, it's not because there's better hunters there. <laughs> I would imagine that some of the lazy hunters are probably drawn to that because they see that success rates are high. So, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I think the data is definitely reliable. Uh, and that's one of the first things mm -hmm. I look at. I mean, that's, you know, I, I was talking to you before we started the podcast. Yeah. I've been spending quite a bit of time on Go Hunt in uh, the filtering 2.0 portion of it, looking at over-the-counter options because we uh, we didn't draw hardly anything this year. And so I'm, I'm uh, like most years, looking at over-the-counter opportunities. 
And, you know, there are things. It's, it's, it's funny how you think that, okay, I want to go to an area that has the best trophy potential. And then you look at the bowl, the cow ratio there is, is mm-hmm. low. And it's like, well, you know, I'd settle for a little bit lower than the best trophy potential. And then you look there and it's like, okay, success rates are low. And so it's like, okay, I'm just going to look at success rates. I want the highest success rate. And I look there and I see something like 34%. And I'm like, okay, now we're talking. And I look at the bowl to cow ratio and it's low. And so, you know, I don't think there's any one factor that that weighs heavily, you know, have most heavily in in that decision. Uh, it's that combination of trying to find the the unit or the units that offer a better than average uh, statistic for each of those factors. And so it's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, and there are some people that yeah. do go based strictly off a trophy. I, some that go strictly <laughs> off a bull to cow ratio. I mean, there there are over the counter units in Idaho that have a bull to cow ratio of over sixty to a hundred. And you know, we're we're talking wow. over the counter. Can you tell me where yeah. those are? Well, go to filtering 2.0, and all you have to do is slide the little <laughs> dial there, and you, you can see it. But, yeah, so, I mean, those factors <laughs> I look for, that that is one of them. And the nice thing about filtering 2.0 is, you know, trophy potential for me, especially in a state like Idaho, every unit here has got a, you know, 320 to a 350-inch bowl. You probably aren't going to see one. Most of us aren't going to get to see one during the season while we're hunting, but they're there in just about every unit. Uh, so when I look at the trophy potential, it's yeah. more of the average. If it's 300-inch average trophy potential, that tells me, okay, there's a, a good mix of mature bulls there. If I see the average trophy potential in a unit in, in Idaho is 330 inches, I'm thinking, okay, that's probably managed more for trophy potential, and it probably doesn't have a general rifle season, uh, some things like that. So there, there's always mm-hmm. some factors there, but I don't put a whole lot of stock in the trophy potential, but I do usually set it when I'm looking at filtering 2.0 at you know 300 or better uh, is an opportunity that you would have. Yeah. Uh, and then you can filter out you know season dates if you want to hunt archery over the counter, if you want to hunt early rifle over the counter, you know all of that you filter out. And then public land, which again, mm-hmm. Idaho, Colorado, uh, Wyoming. There are a handful of units, and you're going to know because they're close to uh, more of the metropolitan areas, more of the cities. You're going to know that some of those units are probably going to have less public land. But for the most part, you know, I think any of these units you're going to expect 80 to 90% public land and access probably isn't going to be a problem. So I usually don't even mess with public land. It might be the last filter that I, that I scroll through. Um, and then that leaves harvest yeah. success. And you know, we're talking over-the-counter general type tags, and if the average is ten or twelve percent. Uh, you know, I'm going to start high, and I'm going to look and see which of those units have really high mm-hmm. harvest success rates, and then I'm going to go through and see why. <laughs> you know, why are they so high? And it, there's usually a reason. You know, that you can usually determine that it's. Yeah. Okay, it is limited public land, so more private land. Uh, you can look at the number of, of tags that are sold, at least in Idaho. You, know, you can see how many tags were sold for that specific unit last year and get an idea of, okay, there's only 
40 people hunting this unit. I'm not going to have to worry about hunting pressure. And 25% success is great, but only 10 elk were killed in all of archery season. So, you know, it's there, there's a lot of factors that go into it beyond just the... Right. the initial ones and then bold to cow ratio is always a fun one for me yeah. you know I, I like a high bold to cow ratio it just mm -hmm. makes calling that much better yeah and the, i look at that and i also look at trends if i can see some sort of trend line you know if we have a bold to cow ratio and a cow to calf ratio most of biologists i talk to say if the cow to calf ratio is 30 or higher uh the herd is maintaining or growing once you get under 30, it's probably in decline. So I look at stuff like that. What are the trends? Sometimes you'll have these anomalies where just one year all of a sudden is a really high harvest year. It's like, okay, was that weather? Was that some, you know, some crazy thing that, that happened? Uh, and then the other thing I I always am careful of is I want to make sure that when the state is reporting the harvest percentage some states include the cow harvest in there and there's nothing wrong with that you just want to know oh that's why this state has a 58 percent harvest percentage they include the cow tags in the in the harvest yep. results so just when you see those high harvest percentages look a little closer i guess is the, <laughs> there is the starting point is the answer if it seems too good it, it might be yeah so I, I do trust that data. Uh, it's been useful for me. And uh, I, I, if, if I'm picking an over-the-counter unit, like when I hunt Montana or when last year I had the general tag in Wyoming, uh, all that stuff comes into play. Same when I do over-the-counter units in Colorado. All, all comes into yep. play. So speaking of which, uh, you know, most of the draws are done, I think. Are there any elk drawings? Oh, you guys in Idaho Well, still just for another day or two. So. Posted your... Yeah, June 5th is yeah, the deadline. Yeah, the deadline is coming up, and then you'll be posting. You guys turn your results around pretty quick, though. Yeah, the deadline's June Probably 5th, and quick, it's usually... Not quick enough, but... <laughs> usually within three weeks, though, which is pretty darn good. Yeah. So... <clears throat> with Idaho being has has uh, Oregon their deadline was May fifteenth. Yep. Did they post their draw results? Uh, yet? I have not seen anything there. And of course, I didn't apply, so I'm not anxiously okay. awaiting. But I think uh, we would know. Yeah. <clears throat> so what do we have left? If someone hasn't drawn a tag in one of the limited entry states, they've got Colorado over the counter. Montana has some return tags that'll go on sale usually in late July or the August. Idaho has some return tags. Oregon has over-the-counter. Utah has some over-the-counter or spike only. Yep. Am I missing some? Washington has some over-the-counter oh. west side for oh. Roosevelt, and there's some <clears throat> over-the-counter for Rocky Mountain Elk on the east side of the mm -hmm. state. See? There you go. I'm. I live in a small world. That's why I, I I hang out with the world traveling type, like Corey Jacobson, yeah. man of many man of many elk languages. So, honestly, it's it's so, a lot of me just sitting here dreaming about elk destinations and be like, I need, I need to learn about that state. I need to learn about that one. I've never hunted in Washington. I just know that mm -hmm. there's opportunity there. 
Yeah. So if you want all this, Brady and Trail will be doing strategy articles about where all these are out on the Insider. They'll they'll probably have those out in the next couple of weeks, it'd be my guess. But uh, if you sign up for Go Hunts Insider, you get the maps, you get all that stuff now. Uh, use promo code ELKTOCK, and they're going to give them a $50 gift card in their gear shop. Man. Right? Yeah. Great deal. And that's the second time that's that a, we've promoted the promo code elk talk. It must be a, must be a common theme here. <clears throat> must work. <laughs> yeah, it must work. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's told us otherwise anyway. Yeah. At least not yet. Yep. But so uh, we, we've rattled off all those states and now people are like, shut up, guys. I don't want everyone to know where you can still go hunting this year. But it kind of fits our premise of you and I always saying that even if it's not the greatest hunt in the world, going out and allowing yourself to, one, be in the woods and have some fun, but two, make a few mistakes, just adds to your lifetime of elk hunting knowledge. So please go do that. Absolutely. Whoever's listening, don't sit at home for a year. Go find some place to do it. So yep. no better time than right now. And then <clears throat> I'm I'm gonna ask you this question, Corey, because rumor has it that uh you're gonna be in Big Sky for the total archery challenge. I am. Yep. Is that true? <laughs> that that is true. Okay. And and you told me that you're gonna <clears throat> you're gonna shoot the course. Yeah. Is that true? Of course. Yeah, a couple oh, times. Okay. <clears throat> Really? Well, I just man, you must have way better shoulders than I do. I uh, well, I have been fortunate to be able to uh, shoot my bow a lot. Yeah, yeah. I I shot that course up there the first year I I went to it. I'm trying to remember that was like 2015 or something. My shoulders being as bad as they are, I almost thought I was going to have to turn back my archery tag. <laughs> Shooting that many arrows in one session? Oh my gosh. I just wanted to cry. My shoulders hurt so bad. So that's why I'm I shoot three arrows for breakfast, three for lunch, and three for dinner. <laughs> I know people are like, well, no no wonder you're such a bad shot, Randy. Uh but uh you I've watched you and in fact it is actually on film where we ran into a flock of grouse and Corey, the, I think here's what I think happened. Corey got an elk to bugle right from the parking lot. <laughs> and while he's over there calling to this elk, I'm throwing rocks at grouse. I come running back. I get my bow and Corey sees me all excited. He thinks I'm grabbing my bow because we're going to go kill this elk. Well, I'm spinning off my my broadhead and putting judo points on, and I shot it. I shot the close grouse. This blue grouse jumps up on a dead, leaned over tree, thirty whatever it was, thirty five, thirty eight yards out there. And I see Corey draw aim. I'm like, oh, he's gonna center punch this thing. He shot its head off. <laughs> I'm like, I couldn't do that if he gave me a thousand arrows. <laughs> And I'm like, you hit that thing in the head. And he's like, he looks at me like, yeah. So <laughs> they don't have a whole lot of meat on them. I so pay really. You don't want to waste meat. <clears throat> True. 
but I don't want them to get away either. So I have no problem <laughs> shooting them right between the shoulder blades. <laughs> Every once in a while, I luck out and I hit them in the head, but not due to skill. So after that, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay close attention to what this guy does with his setup and how he does everything. So you got any little tips or ideas of what you do when you are setting up your bow and getting ready? Because I suspect you try to get it set up and then it's fine tuning for a while. And then it's just practice, practice, practice for the rest of summer. Yeah, pretty you, much. You see any things that people do wrong? Uh, you know, and it's, I'll, I'll put another little plug in here and I'm becoming less uh, modest on the online course, I guess, but we're actually uh, creating an archery module for the University of Elkhunning online course specific to uh, getting into archery, setting up your bow and all of that. And so it has been top of mind recently and I actually have set up, uh, I think, four or five bows now in the last four weeks. Uh, between mine and my kiddos and friends and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, again, it goes back to my engineering background and, you know, my linear thought process and most will probably say being anal and OCD, but uh, I do, I'm, I'm so particular about setting up a bow and making sure that it's mm -hmm. not just close. That, you know, there is no such thing as close enough. It has to be perfect and you know there's been times when i've had to send a bow back or dug into it and said there's just something wrong i'm not able to tune this thing perfectly and we get looking and one of the limbs is is uh you know weaker than another one and it's just causing a little bit of an imbalance but you mm -hmm. can see that when you're when you're really just precisely tuning a bow and so i really spend a lot of time mm -hmm. up front on that so that I don't see issues, you know, once I do get fine-tuned and it's like, man, I just don't want to chase moving issues down the road. I'd rather do it up front. So I spend a lot of time on the setup, just getting, you know, make sure I'm at the absolute center point on the string. And it's not measuring and dividing by two just because of the way the cams rotate and everything. You don't end up with that center point. So finding the absolute center point, finding, you know, making sure that the, the arrow is sitting on the rest, you know, I use levels and everything to, to get it dialed in. But from there, you know, the tuning of it. And people, you know, there's a lot of different ways to tune. You can bear shaft tune, you can walk back tune, you can paper tune. And for me, uh, any of those work, but it's really just to get me close at that point. And so I, I am very particular on paper tuning. That's what I use. And I shoot and I shoot and I tweak and I tweak until I have a perfect bullet hole through paper. And from there, then I put on broadheads and field points and go back to 30 yards and, you know, dial in the, the pin on the bow and then shoot broadheads and field points. And if they're not hitting in the exact same place at 30 yards, my bow's not tuned. And so I'll take some time then and really <laughs> fine tune it to get it. Because, I, you know, people will argue all the time that you can't get broadheads and field points to fly the same. And there hasn't been a year in the last 15 years that I have not had my broadheads and field points hitting exactly the same out to 100 yards. And it's just a matter wow. of, you know, that fine tuning. Now, is it good enough to have your broadheads hit close to your field points out to 50 yards? and go hunt with it yeah i think 
for most people, that's you know close enough is good. Uh, but for me, I have so many other weaknesses and handicaps when it comes to hunting that I want to make sure that if there's anything I can remove from that bucket that that I do it. And so that's you know I spend a yeah. lot of time. I probably spend a good two weeks just getting that bow tuned and shooting it, making sure things are good before I really even start fine-tuning the sights because I want to make sure the bow is dialed in. So when I start fine-tuning the sights, once I get them set, I don't have to monkey with them the rest of the year. And so I'm at a point right now where I'm just about done dialing in the sights. You know, everything's sighted in, and now it's just a matter of, of repetition, shooting four arrows at a time at a little dot and just noticing, okay, am I hitting just slightly low? Am I hitting just slightly left? Do I need to tweak anything to get it dead on? And here within the next week or so, I'll probably have that dialed in, and then the next two months are just repetitive practice just shooting uh and that's why i like the total archery challenge like you brought up at big sky it's just you know for me it's not the shoulder work i mean most of the courses have i think 20 targets and you shoot an arrow at each target uh but you're covering seven or eight miles and several thousand feet of vertical at those and so it, it just it gives you an opportunity to wear a backpack to go for five or six hours to hike between targets, to get tired, and it really replicates an actual hunting situation about as good as anything can. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to know. I I lied when I said I only shoot three for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> I did shoot nine this morning for breakfast, and I shot nine for lunch. Wow. I'll see how my shoulder feels if I shoot nine more for dinner, but... So the other thing I'm doing in this, I had Lasix in 2007. And over time, now my left eye is still like a hawk out there at far distance. But my right eye has adjusted as my reading eye. And <laughs> so, uh, so I know people so are, are you like, able how to does he hit anything, man? with one eye and your pins with the other eye? Well, that's why I got rid of my 50-yard pin. It just got too blurry. There was no precision to it. <laughs> so I now I have a 20, 30, 40. It's like, all right, now I'm finding the pin is really clear or the target's really clear, <laughs> but not both. <laughs> so the other day, I called my buddy Tom. I'm like, Tom, you, you do the optometry work for every hunter in this valley. What's my solution? He's like, come on in. I got these new multifocal contacts. You aren't going to believe it. You'll only wear one contact, but you'll, you, you, you won't even believe how good it is. So I have an appointment two weeks from yesterday, and uh, we'll see how it works. Wow. But it's just an age thing. You know, but you, you start getting to be a certain age, Corey, and you can't even cough without having a lingering effect to something. It's like, <laughs> man, like my buddy Joe Gutkowski used to say, he was a, a smoke jumper and he used to go up in the mountains here outside of Bozeman elk hunting with nothing more than just a backpack and a bivy shelter in November. <laughs> and he'd say, you young boys will learn this pretty soon, but this getting old ain't for sissies. <laughs> like, Joe, you're right. It isn't for sissies. I believe you, man. Uh, so, but do you use a, a light, heavy, or moderate setup 
for your your total arrow because we get this question so much uh, in emails and we usually don't don't get into it but it, in Idaho you guys can't use expandables or mechanicals correct. so I know you're using a using a, a fixed blade yeah uh, what what's that setup look like so I'm I'm kind of the middle of the road guy and you know there's arguments both ways fast and light you know get a bow that shoots fast and because speed is a component of your kinetic energy so the faster an arrow is going the right. more kinetic energy it's going to hit with which in theory, should transfer into better penetration and all that. And then there's the other side that is, Mm -hmm. you know, add 400 grains to the front of your arrow, make that thing, you know, as heavy as you possibly can, and the weight contributes to your momentum. So when that arrow hits, it's got momentum driving it through the target, and you're going to get better penetration. Obviously, the downside is the heavier Mm -hmm. arrow you shoot, the slower your bow is going to shoot that arrow, and that's going to decrease your velocity. So it decreases your kinetic energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're shooting a slower arrow, it's also going to spread your pin gap out. So your pins from 20 to 60 are going to be mm-hmm. spread out more than if you're shooting a fast bow, which means you've got to be more accurate with your shooting. You've got to know the distance better, uh, some of those things. So there's, there's pros mm-hmm. and cons both ways. Where I've kind of ended up is right in the middle. So I like, I I do add weight to the front Mm -hmm. of my arrow. It improves and increases the FOC, which is the, how far in front of center, that what the FOC stands for is front of center, how far in front of center Mm -hmm. the actual arrow balances. And the higher that percentage is, the more weight that you have up front. And with any kind of projectile, weight up front is going to uh, stabilize that projectile in flight faster uh, because that heavy weight's up front directing the back end of the arrow. Whereas if you have a really light front end on the arrow, it's not uncommon for that back end to kick really hard. Uh, The other thing you have to take into consideration, you add weight to the front of the arrow, it's going to flex it more when all of the energy from the limbs is transferred through the string into the arrow and there's more weight up front to get the the projectile moving, it's going to flex it more. So your spine becomes more critical on your arrow and, and I did have to uh, go to a stiffer arrow when I added weight to the front because I couldn't get them to tune with the mm-hmm. with the arrows I was using before. So, all of that being said, I shoot uh, 468 grains total weight of the arrow. Uh, I put a 40 grain insert weight behind the insert on the front of the arrow. I shoot 100 grain broadhead or field point, uh, and my FOC is around. I think it's. 13%, which is probably lower than I want to be. I used to shoot 15 or 16%, but again, when I added the weight mm-hmm. to the front, it increased it to that 15 or 16%, but the spine was too weak with the current arrows. Went to a stiffer spine, it increased the weight of the arrow, which uh, changed everything there as far as the FOC. So that was a long answer mm. to a short question. So total arrow, total, no, it's great. <laughs> I I love hearing this from someone who's an engineer <clears throat> because I'm an accountant. I went through the first two years of engineering before I decided to get distracted at Arizona State and got put on academic probation. <laughs> so I did go through all the engineering courses, or at least all the physics, calculus, all that. And uh, I I just I filmed the sh- uh, I do these stories. Uh, 
Last year, I did two of them called Shop Stories out on my YouTube channel. And they're funny things that the camera guys hear me talk about. And so the one we just did, the guys in the office were asking me the question I just asked you. Well, what's your total arrow weight? said uh, about 500 depends usually it's like comes in at 503 or 504 grains total everything they're like why that heavy i said well let me tell you i got the best physics lessons when i was a kid and it had to do with soup spoons and wooden spoons <laughs> that every woman every mom <clears throat> in the neighborhood knew she was at liberty to beat any kid who got out of line so it didn't matter where you were. If you smarted off or you spilled the milk on the carpet or something, you got a you got a whooping. And so my dad bought these industrial strength soup spoons, these big metal ladles, as a like you know the Ronco guy buy buy one for four ninety nine and get eight more by just paying shipping and handling. <laughs> well, he was handing them out to the moms in the neighborhood like they were candy or something. My dad was trying to score points or something. I don't know. So every woman in our neighborhood was armed with industrial strength soup ladles. And my mom used to give me a whooping with a wooden spoon. Wooden spoons aren't very dense. Yeah. So I quickly figured out that force, according to Newton's third law, what is it that uh, uh, two objects, uh, when they meet, an object you know, in motion, equal and opposite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever it is that the 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 size, the mass of the object has a lot to do with it, and that's why force equals mass times acceleration, or in the case of when your body, your your seven year old rump stops a, a soup ladle that's deceleration which you are absorbing that much force so by getting beat with a wooden spoon versus a big heavy metal soup ladle i quickly understood that i wanted to lean on the heavier side of my arrow weight than the lighter side of my arrow weight yeah. and little did i know when i was seven years old and beverly ran us it was laying the wood or the metal spoon to me for stealing some chocolate chip cookie dough or something. I don't know what I did to Beverly, man. She she worked me over with that spoon a couple times. But <laughs> a wooden spoon, it, it just left a little welt. A metal spoon that weighed a lot more coming at the same speed or even a slower speed, that left a bruise from the cheek of my butt down to where my hamstring started, <laughs> man. That's fine. All right. When I grow up and I buy a bow, I'm shooting heavy arrows. <laughs> so little did people know that we were getting all these physics lessons when we were kids. And they apply to hunting. So that's what you my know, shop story is about. I was just going to say, uh, there are so many lessons that we learn in our youth that apply to hunting. Mine was always my mom telling me, it's not what you say that gets you in trouble. It's how you say it. And that is so true oh, when it comes yeah. to calling elk. I mean, that's, it's not what you say that gets oh, the elk really? in your face. It's how you say it to the elk. And Yeah. <laughs> uh, I might have to have you do a cameo on this uh, shop story that I'm doing. <laughs> it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yeah, mm. that's, yeah. that, that could be some marriage advice also. Absolutely. It's what I mean, you say uh, and yeah. how you say it once you get married. It's they both count against you. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah. And that, that doesn't matter whether you're the husband or the wife. Yep. Hey, that, that principle applies in both cases. So well, speaking, but speaking folks, of that, just understand know, that I was just uh, going to say my wife and I celebrated our 20th anniversary yesterday. Oh, congratulations. Oh, yeah. Man, where, where do I speak to marriage advice now? Yeah. Oh yeah, you can, man, I need to send her some sort of uh, certificate of achievement or something, some citizen condolences, civic award. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, twenty years! Wow, yeah. you're getting up there, huh? I am. Some of our listeners yeah. probably aren't even twenty years old. Well, most of them probably are over twenty. Enjoy it. <laughs> I bet. I bet you most of them haven't been married twenty years though. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm officially middle aged. I think when you when you're married twenty years, you officially enter middle age. Ah, uh, wow. Well, I'm what what is it when you're twelve years past entering middle age, old age? No, that's your golden years. I think they call that. Really, I'm still looking for the gold. Then my wife must have hit it out in the backyard in a coffee can or something. But ain't no gold in these ages right now for me. But so just remember that, folks. When you were a kid and grandma was beating you with the soup spoon, force equals mass times acceleration, or think about it, deceleration. Same principle applies. So. When that bull elk is trying to stop my arrow, I want something with a little more mass. So, just my own. That, that's an imprecise physics lesson, and we're going to get all kinds of comments about it, but that's <laughs> that's where I'm at. I'm going with a 500 plus or minus right there, 500 grain total arrow setup. I only shoot at about, I think last time I was through the chrono, I was at 246, 247. So, I'm yeah, and that's the nice thing about where I'm at with my arrow weight. I'm still shooting 278 well, through the chronograph, um, which you know keeps mm. keeps some decent velocity, uh, yeah. keeps some decent arrow weight. But the thing I've really found is if you're shooting 300 feet per second, tuning that arrow becomes more difficult for sure. Uh, yeah. And so I've just found a sweet range from 270 to 280 feet per second. It's a lot easier to tune those arrows and, and get them flying good. Yeah. Well, hell, you'd really be able to tune mine then. Pretty soon you'll have to, if I shoot anything slower, you'll have to set up stakes to make sure I don't have it in reverse here. But I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, well, we didn't get through all of our questions, Corey, but have we kept them long enough, you think? Probably so. I was going to say, if we uh, if we save one, we'll we at least have job security. We'll get to come back and do another episode. <laughs> uh, last time we made a call for guests and topics, and man, we got a lot of them. So, it, yeah. some people are going to be like, "Well, why haven't you had this person on yet?" Well, and it's not like we just call and say, "Hey, you know, I'm Corey Jacobson. You should drop what you're doing and be on this podcast." You know, it takes some scheduling, folks. So, it. We're 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 taking note. We're listening to what you're suggesting, and uh, we'll be having a few of those folks on, hopefully. Absolutely. Yep. So, well, that the, the I can't make up any more lines of BS. I've I've pretty much run out of stories <laughs> and, and things to 
you know, blow smoke about. I, you know, I, I listened I, to uh, to another podcast. It's, uh, you know who Mike Rowe is? Yeah. Uh-huh. He was the, the voiceover guy in the Ford commercials and really yeah. famous guy. Did uh, Dirty, Dirty Jobs, Jobs, that show. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got a podcast called The Way I Heard It. And uh, it's very Paul Harvey-like. Uh, great stories, mm. great storytelling. Uh, it's good stuff there. But he uh, he was sharing some stuff in his first few episodes. And he would say, you know, it's almost, it wasn't necessarily rumored-based, but it, the title was the way I heard it. And uh, somebody called him out on one of his stories and presented him with the facts and said, that's not what happened. That's not what really happened. And so he had to change his whole podcast platform uh, because of that. And uh, I I think that we, from the beginning, have let people know that we are not experts and you get what you pay for here. So we can just continue (laughs) doing what we're doing because we haven't set any high expectations. No, huh? And uh, I mean, anyone who wants to argue with the physics of a wooden spoon versus a metal spoon, you know, just send me an email. Contact at randynewberg.com. <laughs> and I'll, I probably have pictures of the welts. And I'll say that one there, that, that just looks like a little slap. That's a wooden spoon. You see that one that looks like I got hit by Brutus the Barber Beefcake or Jimmy Superfly Snooker? That's the, that's the metal soup ladle right there. One's a super light yeah. arrow, one's a super heavy arrow. So that's all I, I, no I got to make. Who any of those, who any of those names you just rattled off were, but. What? Oh, man. George Scrap Iron Gadaski was again? from right down the highway. Yeah, George Scrap Iron Gadaski <laughs> was from right down the highway here in Butte, Montana. <laughs> Grandma used to make me practice being her announcer when the when wrestling was over. She missed it so much she'd ask me to be the announcer. So I'd sit there and act like I was introducing wrestlers, and you know, me and my uncles would be doing high flies off the couch, arms and. One time, Boog, my one uncle, put Jimmer in the pile driver, and it, you know, they, that pile driver thing, they fake it on wrestling. Boog didn't fake it. He drove his head right down into the floor. Boy, there's some kayaking and yodeling going on there. I thought, well, we might even have to call an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> that was before 911. That's when you had to remember the, the actual phone number of the hospital. But, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I got going way back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, I, I bet you that was back 1974, 1973, something like that. So, anyhow. Well, that would explain why I don't remember uh, not having 911, because I was born in 75, and as long as I can remember, 911 was the uh, the number really? to the hospital. Yeah. Oh, man. Wait till you hear the rest of my shop story, if you want to hear how old I was, or how old I am. I talk about torque. And my dad... Had a he wanted to have the tallest antenna in town, and the way you adjusted it is you took your eight year old and you handed him the pipe wrench and a cheater bar, and you sent him out there, and he spun the antenna until you said, "Whoa, the channel's coming in." So my dad would sit there drinking his Pabst Blue Ribbon, get out there and change the channel. I was the I was the remote for my dad. We had two channels. <laughs> we, had, we we had Winnipeg. CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and Duluth, WDIO. And one was northwest of us about, well, I don't know what heading that would be about, 
anyhow, northwest of us, west-northwest. And Duluth was kind of east-southeast. And so I had to get on that pipe wrench. And at eight years old, I couldn't put enough torque to it. So he got me a cheater pipe. And that's how I learned that the further away from the point of, of leverage or fulcrum, the greater the force you can apply. Another physics lesson. I thought my dad was just having me go out there because he didn't want to get off the couch. He wanted to watch TV. And Ed Sullivan was going to be on at 7 o'clock. And so he sent me out there. <laughs> Little did I know he's teaching me physics. So, man. Anyhow, that's how old I am. We had a party line. That, did you ever have, ever have a party line? When we finally we had, got we had a an antenna in a, a tree line. that we turned, and we had a we had a party line. Yeah. Oh, so I'm, I'm, okay. like I said, I'm I'm pretty middle enough, aged. Then. All yeah. Right. yeah, I'm old age. So anyhow, when I get this whole physics for hunters shop story done, I'll let you know. Yeah, since you're an uh, engineer, I, I might I might have you critique it, and then we'll just <laughs> put it. We're not. <laughs> We're not going to change anything. We're just going to say, according to Newton and Corey, Sir Isaac and Corey, Isaac, according to Isaac Jacobson. Yeah, there we go, huh? There you go. We don't need to get Isaac on here for advice. <laughs> Anybody willing to take advice from an 18-year-old, you get what you pay for. and then. Uh, I said that because Corey has a son that would fit that name uh anyhow when it's all done when it's all done i'm gonna have that up there and i i'm not gonna change what i said i'm just gonna say well according to Corey and isaac newton this is this is how it this is the real formula for this concept randy's talking about but randy doesn't believe it so or at yep. least my I've, application is uh, different I was going to say, I've already got a couple of, uh, of things that I will point out and possibly correct in a couple of equations you've shared in this podcast. So, Oh, really? We'll, uh, Wait, we'll, force we'll equals mass through. times acceleration, right? Well, and, to a degree, and momentum I mean, yes, equals P equals M times V, wasn't it? Mass times velocity. <laughs> Kinetic energy equals one half mass times velocity squared or something like that yep no you're you're on was the it, right track was there. i right it's with just, those uh, you know how long it's been since you, i took physics it's been 30 years right since track <clears throat> okay yeah, i just I, I don't know that i would use the the height of the welt or the depth of the bruise to measure um arrow penetration oh. but <laughs> no yes yes you should that we'll argue that one but okay all right, all right. <laughs> anyhow that's uh the you you talked about your precision i don't care about precision i just care about what it meant to me like, you know what? I got all those welts on my butt when I was a kid. They, I'm going to make use of it somehow. I'm taking that lesson to lunch, man. I'm taking that to the bank. So, uh, well, sorry to keep them any well, longer, Corey. Sorry. Yeah, we probably better turn them loose. All right. Thanks for being here, folks. Have a great day, Corey. Yep, you too. Thanks, Randy. <laughs>